let's get into the Word. So if you have your Bible, find the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4. This morning, for those of you who have been here, we're carrying on with our study through this great New Testament book called the Acts of the Apostles. If it's your first time here or haven't been here, this is what we're doing on Sunday mornings. We're going through uh, the, the book of Acts this, this fall and spring. That's our typical MO on Sunday mornings, both in this hour and in the next, you'll find out, is to just study through Scripture and see what God has to teach us. That way we don't really skip over anything. Uh, we, we get the whole counsel of God that way. But here we are in Acts, written by Luke. Luke, obviously, who wrote the Gospel of Luke. And because, Interestingly, because Luke is 24 chapters long, and he wrote Acts, which is 28 chapters long, both in long books. If you go by word count, Luke wrote more of our New Testament than anybody else. may sound surprising, and that includes Paul. That may sound surprising because obviously Paul wrote more books in the New Testament than anybody else, but if you go by volume, it's Luke. Um, But Luke wrote the book of Acts clearly as a sequel to his gospel. And both, both books are addressed to the same guy in, in the beginning of Luke and Acts. Both, both are addressed to a guy named Theophilus. And in, in the gospel, Luke is, is trying to give Theophilus an orderly account of Jesus' life and his ministry, the gathering of his disciples, all the way up to the time of his death and resurrection. When you come to the book of Acts, and it just picks up right where the gospel left off, still addressed to this man named Theophilus. This is volume two. And he's going to begin with, Jesus' ascension that happened just 40 days after his resurrection. And then what happened from that point in his disciples' lives and in the growth of the church for the next 30 or so years, in the growth and expansion of the Christian faith and of the church. That's what we have in Acts. The, the book begins with these words. In the, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So clearly that's a, that's a summary of the gospel of Luke. That's what he intended to do, to deal with all that Jesus began to do and teach. But what the, think about how that's worded. I, in the first book, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. What does that imply? It implies that the second book is going to be about what Jesus continued to do. Well, you get to the first chapter in Acts, though, and Jesus leaves the scene. He ascends back to heaven at the right hand of the Father. So in what way is Jesus still active in the book of acts when he's not physically there he's active through the spirit through the coming of the holy spirit through his spirit empowering his people remember in john's gospel jesus said it's to your advantage that i go go away because if i go away, i'm going to send a helper that's actually better than my physical presence he said so in chapter two we saw the holy spirit come just as jesus promised on the day of pentecost peter stood to preach and thousands in jerusalem that day and thousands were uh, repented of their sins and trusted in Christ. They were saved. The, on that, that one day, the church went from 120 to 3,120. Then in chapter 3, last week, we saw Peter and John heal a man who was lame. Today, we're going to learn from chapter 4 that that lame man, formerly lame man, was more than 40 years old. And they healed him as they were entering the temple that day, Peter and John, uh, in Jerusalem for, at the hour of prayer. And, and when, when they were asked to explain why this man who had grown his whole life long, over four decades, 
lame how this man is all of a sudden leaping and jumping and praising God? Well, they answered it was Jesus who healed them through them. All right, so the crowd gathered because of that. You, you, you can suspect you pass this guy who's lame day after day after day after day. Now, all of a sudden, he's walking around and leaping. Might draw a crowd, right? When the crowd draws, Peter stands to preach again. That's, we see that in Acts over and over again. When miracles happen, it draws a crowd, and that's the forum for the gospel proclamation, right? And it's in the middle of that sermon when the crowd gathered because, the, because of the lame man who had been healed, and Peter stands up to preach. It's in the middle of that sermon that our chapter begins today. And so we're in chapter 4. So if you have found that place in your Bible, let's, let's read our passage. We're not going to read the whole chapter. Um, we'll, we'll cover the, most of it, verses 1 to 31, uh, but then save the last little bit for next week to coincide with chapter 5. Here's what we read in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. When they had sent, set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among, given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they heard had, hurt, had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to, the friend, to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. 
When they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of, your father, of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? This is Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed for Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed... The place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. It is our guide. It is our authority for all things pertaining to life and godliness, faith and practice. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us minds to understand the truth that is clearly set forth in these words. Give us not only minds to, eyes to see them and minds to understand them, but give us hearts to embrace and love the truth that we see, not to be indifferent toward it. Give us wills to obey anything it, it leads us to do. Give us all ears to hear and give me the help that I need to teach. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, in the passage we just read, there, there's one, uh, one theme that just leaps off the page every time I read this chapter, and it's boldness. Boldness. Peter displays boldness. Peter and John do in the early verses of the chapter when he and John were standing before the Sanhedrin uh, after being arrested, after spending a night in jail, being intimidated. They showed boldness. The first thing that the Sanhedrin notices about them is their boldness. And then when they are released and they go back to their friends and their friends have a prayer meeting, what do they pray for? For boldness. Right? So clearly that's the idea that the Lord is intending to capture our attentions with. And so that's what I want to be the focus this morning. So our, our idea is always to let the Scriptures speak for themselves and say only what Scripture says or is warranted by Scripture. So what I want to do is walk back through this account and at a, at a slower pace, and think about it. And as we do, think about it from the angle of boldness for the sake of the gospel. Boldness for the sake of the gospel. And as we move back through this passage, here's what I want us to see from it. Uh, first of all, in the first, it, it's three clear scenes. The first one, verses 1 through 12, I want us to see the prominence of boldness in Peter and John. The prominence of boldness in Peter and John, especially Peter. It's the most notable thing about them, according to the Sanhedrin in verse 13. So the, the prominence of boldness in Peter and John. But then beginning in verse 13 through verse 22, we'll, I want us to think about the possibility then of boldness in us. The possibility of boldness in us. We'll see that in how the Sanhedrin respond to Peter and John after they give their defense. I think it gives hope to us. Finally, in verses 23 to 31, the prayer for boldness one of the great prayers in the book of Acts. And, and a great one that helps us balance a high view of the sovereign rule and power of God 
Yes, but how that doesn't negate our responsibility to intentionally depend upon him and ask him for his help. Okay, So that's where we're headed. So let's go back to the beginning and think first about the prominence of boldness in Peter and John in these early verses. Even though there's a chapter division here, when you come to verse 1, uh, you're, clearly you're still in the same story from chapter 3. Because verse 1 begins, and as they were speaking to the people, and if this was the beginning of a brand new story, who and what is that talking about? Right? But if you ignore the big fat four uh, right there, it makes perfect sense. In chapter 3, the lame man had been healed. The, the miracle drew a crowd together to whom Peter then stood to preach. And it's in the middle of that sermon that our chapter begins. And interestingly, notice in verse 1 it says, and as they were speaking to the people. As they were speaking. So the only other person we can surmise that this was was John. So Peter and John were arrested. So it was both Peter and John who were exhorting the people after the healing of that, that, um, that lame man. So this chapter opens with Peter and John still preaching with an over 40-year-old formerly lame man just walking and mingling among the crowd, walking perfectly healthy. Just imagine that. What kind of surreal moment must that have been? I mean, this is two Jews who had come to faith in Jesus preaching to a crowd of Jews in Jerusalem at the temple or near the temple. And this guy is walking around that no doubt they had seen probably three times a day. I mean, they were, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, it said in chapter 3. And, the, and, and we, we surmise that there were three hours of prayer at 9, noon, and 3. And every time there was an hour of prayer, his friends would bring him and lay him there to beg for alms as people were going. I mean, you see this guy so much, you almost start to tune him out. He just becomes a fixture there. As I go to the temple, there's this man laying on the ground begging for alms. And all of a sudden, this man who for over four decades had been like that, this guy's walking around. Walking around, and I'm talking to him eye to eye. I'm not looking down at him. Weird. It's weird. And, and not only that, not only is he up walking around, but he's walking around because these two guys told him to. And now these two guys who told this man to get up and walk, and he did, they're preaching. It had to have created some sort of surreal kind of legitimacy and urgency to what they were saying, to the message they were preaching. But there they are. And they're still commanding these, uh, exhorting these people and, and, and still preaching. And the rest of verse 1 says, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. So into this, into this crowd that was deeply captivated, obviously deeply repentant by what we, what we eventually read, into that crowd walked a very conspicuous group of people. The priests, the priests walked in. The priests would have been those on duty for the evening sacrifice at the temple for that day. The captain of the temple would have been second in line to the high priest. And then the Sadducees. They would have been the most intimidating ones there. The Sadducees, when I was growing up, the preacher always had a corny joke. The reason the Sadducees were so sad, you see. But um, I'm not going to do that to you, even though I just did. <clears throat> the Sadducees were the religious conservatives of the day. 
conservative in, in a not a good way. Um, they, the Sadducees only held to the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses. That's the only ones they recognized as legitimate. And for that reason, their theology was all kind of messed up or not complete. They had some wacky views. Uh, the one that the scriptures most prominently and over and over again point out about the Sadducees is they didn't believe in a resurrection. In other words, they didn't believe that there was anything beyond this life. The Sadducees didn't believe that there was anything beyond this life. So they, what they did, they tended to make the most out of this one. And they invested in this life. And so they were wealthy. They, they were wealthy men. And they found themselves into positions of power and of influence. That's, that's what they were here. But why did they make this grand entrance into the crowd as Peter and John were preaching? Well, verse 2 says, They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. When the Sadducees heard this, alarm bells would have gone off. Why? Well, notice exactly what they were annoyed at. They were, te they were annoyed at this. They were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Think about that carefully. Not, they weren't preaching the mere fact that Jesus rose from the dead, as true as that is, and which they wouldn't have liked, but they probably wouldn't have made a fuss over the fact that they just said, hey, Jesus rose from the dead. They had heard that before. No, they were upset because they were saying not only that Jesus rose, but because he did, that's confirmation that he's the Messiah, and all who believe in him, they too will rise from the dead. And so they were upset about that because not only the theologically they didn't agree, but even more importantly, politically, politically, that was a touchy subject. That was a touchy subject, but why? Because to say what Peter and John were saying was to say that Jesus was the Messiah, like I just said. And in that day, Messiah had all kinds of political overtones. He was a, he was a conquering king. He was about to, about to rule the nations. And the Romans didn't like that. And because the Romans didn't like that, the Sadducees didn't like that because the Sadducees were friendly with the Romans. That's how they got their positions of power. They didn't want that messed up. So what do they do? In verse 3, they arrest Peter and John. And they kept them in custody until the next day, until the whole Sanhedrin could gather together to decide what to do with them. I love how Luke says that, but then he just goes back to the story. And, oh, by the way, thousands believed. Thousands believed. Hundreds, maybe thousands, in verse 4. It says the number of men came to be about 5,000. It's debated on whether or not that word men, the number of men, has to do literally with what it seems like it's saying, just the men were 5,000. Or if that means the whole number of the disciples were 5,000 at this point. Either way, it's a lot of people. If it's just the men who are 5,000, it's a lot of people. Many thousands of people if you put them all together. They had, but anyway, so they're arrested. The Sanhedrin arrest them. And, uh, and just imagine if you're Peter and John. You probably weren't put in very comfortable lodging when they arrested you. You hadn't broken any laws, really. But the people who had authority over your physical life had just decided to arrest you and decide what to do with you. Golly. Don't, don't, don't try to read this in a faraway, sanitized place. Right? 
Peter and John were real people. They had real families, real homes, real fears, real fears. I mean, sure, Jesus had warned them before he left that difficulties were going to come. But just imagine, John and Peter had grown up Jewish, right? And so there was still probably within them a measure of just ingrained fear of these religious these jewish authorities i mean it's almost an instinctive reaction and and the the idea of standing before the sanhedrin if you don't think if you don't think that's true i mean scripture tells us that peter had real fears you read galatians galatians chapter 2 we're we're told that peter um let's see peter Before certain men came from James, from Jerusalem, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. This is Peter the believer in Galatians 2. But when they, when they came, when these Jewish authorities from Jerusalem came, Peter drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So he wasn't a perfect man. He had fears. And notice how Luke describes the scene in verses 5 and 6. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem and with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were in high priestly family. Quite a list. All the guys from the day before plus a few more. Plus a few more who were apparently of such standing. All they needed to do was say their first name and you kind of know who they are. Alexander and John. Three of those guys we know from history, Annas, Caiaphas, and possibly John, if he's also known as Jonathan in other places, where it ended up being high priest one day. Right? These were, these were important guys. It was the whole Sanhedrin called to court. And verse 7, verse 7 says they put John and Peter right in the middle of the circle. It says when they had set them in their midst. The way, the way they typically formed, the, the Sanhedrin would sit in a, in a semicircle like a horseshoe, and they would put the, the guy right in the middle. You know? Think about that. They were trying their best to in, intimidate Peter and John, intimidate the fool out of them. And when you really think about it, there's a, there's a, there's a good chance that this Sanhedrin that they were sitting in the middle of, this Sanhedrin, good chance that it was the exact same group of men that Jesus Christ stood before just a few months earlier. And they spoke first. How did this miracle happen? By what power or by what name did you do this? They'll admit down in verse 16, by the way, when they're talking just by themselves, what should we do with these guys? For that a notable sign has been performed through them as evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We can't deny it. So they want to know how it happened. And they asked Peter and John what happened, and that's when the unexpected happened, at least to the Sanhedrin's mind. The unexpected happens. John Polehill was a uh, New Testament and Greek uh, scholar, professor at Southern Seminary when I was there, and, and uh, he, he points out that Josephus, you ever heard of Josephus? Jewish historian, ancient Jewish historian back in the first century. Josephus describes in his annals that a normal defendant 
He was Jewish, not a Christian. All right? A normal defendant sitting before this Sanhedrin, he, he described typically they were totally submissive. And not only that, but typically when they went before the Sanhedrin, not only were they totally submissive, often they would wear, a, well, they would wear black. Like they, would wear a bl- like they were mourning. Like sad, contrite, repentant. Totally submissive. Going into it, just admitting that they did wrong. Please forgive us. Please show mercy. All right? Hoping for mercy. Well, when you get to verse 8, Rather than wearing black and rather than being submissive and certainly not pretending to be in mourning, verse 8 says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and then he he proceeds to explain to them that it was in the name of Jesus Christ that this man was healed and that Jesus Christ is the one who healed. And notice how he says in verse 10, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man is standing before you well. So apparently the newly walking lame man was there too. Peter's the one who speaks in the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. And just follow his train of thought there in verse 10. Just just hear what he's saying. He says basically, first, do you want to know who healed this man? It was Jesus Christ. And not just that, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Just so we're talking about the same guy. Oh, and by the way, Since we're talking about the same guy, the one from Nazareth, remember that's the one you crucified and killed. Oh, and by the way, he's not dead anymore. God the Father raised him from the dead. That's who did it through us. Oh, and by the way, he didn't stop there. He says in verse 11, it's actually worse than you think. Peter says, you actually fulfilled Scripture when you did that. They fulfilled Psalm 118, 22 and 23. How would that make you feel? You did wrong. And you know that that passage about the bad guys who would reject the Messiah, the one you probably memorized, the one you probably say every Sabbath? It's actually you. They didn't stop there. Verse 12, he says, there's hope if you'll repent. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is salvation, but in no one else. And we must be saved. And notice he says, we. He switches to the first person. It's no longer you, 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 you. There is salvation in no one else. And we, and we there, there's no other name given under heaven among men by which We must be saved. He includes himself. So Peter says we. He acknowledged his own need. The question is, would they? They just asked about what name the guy was healed. Peter answered that, but he also told them by which the the same name by which they must be saved and their sins forgiven. No, not, not surprising. Verse 13 says, and when they saw the boldness of Peter. And John, they were astonished. That was the most prominent thing about Peter and John. That they, he probably got finished saying that, and they're probably saying, what just happened? To the Sanhedrin? Who are these guys? Nobody talked to them like this. Most made no defense whatsoever. They wore black. Just show us, please, mercy. 
And these men call us to repentance. And there you see Peter and John didn't have boldness just for boldness' sake. It wasn't just a personality tick. They were bold for the sake of the gospel. They were bold in a moment when they had an opportunity to speak and they answered more than they were asked in order to bear witness to the very ones who killed the Christ. Now, if you're anything like me, you might be prone to read accounts like this and almost be unfazed by it. Because after all, it's Peter and John. It's Peter and John, man. I mean, it's in the next chapter that you're going to read that they also carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. And Peter came by. As Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on some of them. That's Peter. Wowzers. So you're almost not surprised to see Peter, the one whose shadow can apparently heal people, being bold in this place. But you don't even really see this as going as a kind of boldness for the gospel that you could see in yourself. But if that's how you see it, this chapter actually is, without question, a gentle correction to you. If you see the boldness of Peter and John in that moment, and you say, I, I don't have it in me to be that bold. Well, A, you're right. I'm, I, I don't either. But if you say, I, I, that could never be me. Well, this chapter is a gentle uh, correction at that. Uh, because the next thing we, we're going to see in this chapter is the possibility of boldness in us. We, we don't have time to see verses 13 through 22, every verse in, in detail. But really to see the point here, just look at a couple of places. First of all, remember again the boldness that they've already shown at their defense that we just saw. But also, after the Sanhedrin says, get out of here for a second, we need to talk and confer with each other. They call them back in. And they, it says they threatened them. It says that in verse uh, 21. They warned them in verse 17. Commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Well, in reply, Peter and John answered in verses 19-20, whether it's right in the sight of God, to listen to you rather than to you rather than God, you be the judge. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So they were they were still bold. Not just after being summoned, but after being threatened. And look 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 later in the chapter. Look at look at verse um, thirty twenty nine. Excuse me. The, these threats. It, it says in verse twenty one that they were threatened. We can just wash over that. But look at their prayer in verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. I don't know what their threats were, but apparently they were scary because it made it into the prayer, right? When they were still bold. Now again, it's one thing for them to be bold and another thing for me, right? Well, just look back up one more time at verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. Think about that. They were astonished. Not just at their boldness, 
but that their boldness didn't, didn't come from the fact that they were educated like the rest of them, or that it didn't come from the, the, the fact of their high standing in the community, which they didn't have, or this, this uh, family they were born into, which they weren't. They didn't have any of that. What was, what was astonished was how absolutely ordinary they were. Right? Part of what gave Peter and John this kind of boldness is summarized in something I remember reading in John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life. It's a book I heartily recommend to you. In that book, Piper says, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. But you do have to know a few great things that matter, perhaps just one, and then be willing to give, to, to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by one great thing. If you want your life to count, you don't need to have a high IQ. You don't have to have good looks or riches or come from a fine family or a fine school. Instead, you have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, sim simple, glorious things. Or one all, great, all-embracing thing and be set on fire by them. That was Peter and John. That was, part of their, that was part of their boldness in that moment. I mean, they were mastered by one great thing, one great person. Verse 13 says they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Right? And they had followed him for three years. They had watched him die, watched him be raised, watched him ascend back into heaven. That gave them boldness. But that, that alone doesn't give boldness. That, that might wear off over time. As memories fade. We didn't dwell on it a ton earlier, but verse 8, back in verse 8, Peter, before Peter said a word, it said, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, He spoke. It was the Holy Spirit who gave them boldness to bear witness to Christ. Right? They were, they were convinced in their, uh, in their faith in Christ. They were devoted to Him. But it was the Holy Spirit who gave them boldness in the moment that they needed it in the most intimidating circumstances. It is possible for you and for me to be as bold as Peter and John on that day. Because it wasn't them. It wasn't them. It was Christ in them through the Holy Spirit, which is our promise too. But it's a promise that's granted to us, yeah, for sure, when we ask though. When we ask. Look quickly at what we see as Peter and John are released from custody. And they rejoin their friends and report to them all that had happened. And what they do next is instructive for us. That even though God has promised us the same boldness, he grants it to those who humbly ask. It says in verse 24 that when they heard Peter and John tell them about all that happened, they immediately lifted their voices in prayer. The, the basic requ request out of this whole long prayer, there's one basic request, and it's in verse 29, grant to your servants to continue to speak the word with all boldness. That's, that's what they're asking for. That's the point, though. They asked for it, <laughs> right? Because up to that point in the prayer, they had recognized in verse 24 that God is sovereign over all things. They quote Psalm 2 in verses 25 and 26. It says, where, yes, it says the nations are raging, but guess what? They're raging in vain, it says. Verse 27, 28 says they know that the nations are raging like Psalm 2 says because literally Jews and Gentiles came together to put to get death Jesus on a cross. But when they were doing that, they were only doing what your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. 
But even though the nations are raging, God is Lord over all of it. They don't have any doubt about that. They have a very high view of God. But two things conspired to bring them to this prayer. It was that high view of God. Why else pray to him if he can't act? Knowing that he could provide what they're going to ask. But two, even though the nations were raging in vain against the Lord, they were still raging. And the Sanhedrin had threatened Peter and John, and by extension, all the believers. So they prayed, and they asked the Lord if he would grant to all of them the same spirit-given boldness that they had granted to Peter and John. And God immediately answered that prayer. Verse 31 says, When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. That's a prayer that God always answers. He always answers it. He's commanded us to be his disciples, to be his witnesses, to make disciples, to fulfill the, the Great Commission. But to do that is going to take boldness on our part to speak when it's hard to speak. But if Acts 4 shows us anything, it shows us that when Peter and John were bold in their witness before the Sanhedrin, uh, not only were they bold, but it's, not, it's, it's possible for us to have that same boldness in ourselves, and it will be a certainty when we ask him for it humbly. Let's pray.